creation, early man, and evolution according to modern Holy Fathers. What follows in this recording are teachings from more than a dozen saints and Holy Fathers of the 19th and 20th centuries, teaching us the true vision of creation and the orthodox understanding of modern evolutionary theory. This is by no means an exhaustive collection of texts on this subject, but it helps capture the collective mind of the Holy Fathers of our times, helping us to share in their illumined vision. Father Seraphim Rose, Hieromonk of Platina in Northern California, reposed in 1982 and wrote many treatises and books on various topics, including much on the topic of Genesis and early man. In his response to Dr. Kalamiros, prominent Orthodox evolutionist of his day, he writes, Do you now see what is at stake in the argument between the patristic understanding of Genesis and the doctrine of evolution? The doctrine of evolution attempts to understand the mysteries of God's creation by means of natural knowledge and worldly philosophy, not even allowing the possibility that there is something in these mysteries which places them beyond its capabilities of knowing. While the book of Genesis is an account of God's creation as seen in divine vision by the God-seer Moses, and this vision is confirmed also by the experience of later Holy Fathers. Now, even though revealed knowledge is higher than natural knowledge, still we know that there can be no conflict between true revelation and true natural knowledge. But there can be a conflict between revelation and human philosophy, which is often in error. There is thus no conflict between the knowledge of creation contained in Genesis, as interpreted for us by the Holy Fathers, and the true knowledge of creatures which modern science has acquired by observation. But there most certainly is an irreconcilable conflict between the knowledge contained in Genesis and the vain philosophical speculations of modern scientists, unenlightened by faith, about the state of the world in the six days of creation. Where there is a genuine conflict between Genesis and modern philosophy, if we wish to know the truth, we must accept the teaching of the Holy Fathers and reject the false opinions of scientific philosophers. The world has now become so infected by vain modern philosophy, posing as science, that very few, even among Orthodox Christians, are willing or able to examine this question dispassionately and discover what the Holy Fathers really taught, and then accept the patristic teaching even if it seems utter foolishness to the vain wisdom of this world. Concerning the true patristic view of the first created world, already I think I have indicated enough to you of the patristic views which at first sight seem surprising to an Orthodox Christian whose understanding of Genesis has been obscured by modern scientific philosophy. Most surprising of all, perhaps, is the fact that the Holy Fathers understood the text of Genesis as it is written, and do not allow us to interpret it freely or allegorically. Many Orthodox Christians with a modern education have become accustomed to associating such an interpretation with Protestant fundamentalism, and they are afraid of being considered naive by sophisticated scientific philosophers. 
but it is clear how much more profound is the true patristic interpretation than that of the fundamentalists. On the one hand, who have never even heard of divine vision, and whose interpretation sometimes coincides with that of the Holy Fathers only by accident, as it were. And on the other hand, how much more profound is the patristic interpretation than that of those who uncritically accept the speculations of modern philosophy as if they were true knowledge. St. Ignatius Briancheninov, Bishop and Holy Father of 19th century Russia, points out that knowledge of the first created world remains largely inaccessible to us who know the creation only in its corrupted state. He says, The earth, created, adorned, blessed by God, did not have any deficiencies. It was overflowing with refinement. God saw, after the completion of the whole creation of the world, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31 Now the earth is presented to our eyes in a completely different look. We do not know her condition in holy virginity. We know her in the condition of corruption and accursedness. We know her already sentenced to burning. She was created for eternity. The God-inspired writer of Genesis says that the earth in its original condition did not have need of tilling. Genesis 2.5 it brought forth by itself grains and other nourishing grasses, vegetables and fruits over abundantly and of superb worth. There were no harmful growths on it. Plants were not subjected either to decay or to diseases. Both decay and diseases, and the weeds themselves, appeared after the alteration of the earth following the fall of man. As one ought to conclude from the words of God to Adam, as he was being exiled from paradise. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Genesis 3.18 According to its creation, there was on it only the splendid, only the wholesome. There was only that which was suitable for the immortal and blessed life of its inhabitants. Changes in the weather did not exist. It was continually the same. The most clear and favorable. There were no rains. A spring came forth from the earth and watered its face. Genesis 2, 5-6 The beasts and other animals lived in perfect harmony among themselves, nourishing themselves on plant life. Genesis 1, 30 St. Hilarion Troitsky, hieromartyr and archbishop of Vere, was a prominent hierarch, theological writer, apologist, and close co-worker of St. Tikhon, Patriarch of Moscow. In an essay published in 1913, titled The Incarnation and Humility, St. Hilarion has the following to say about Western philosophies that had infiltrated Russia. Through the misuse of his freedom, man has so corrupted his nature that he is only left to cry out, Wretched am I, poor me, I cannot save myself. We require a new creation. We need an infusion of a new energy of grace. This is precisely what all mankind should say in order to believe in the incarnate Son of God. Such a humble admission, such a lowly confession of one's frailness, of one's guilt before God's handiwork, 
Is this in the spirit of the modern man? On the contrary, the contemporary conscience is saturated with the idea of evolution, the idea of progress, i.e., the very idea that nourishes human pride. Christianity demands a humble conscience. There was perfect Adam, my forefather, and I, mankind, have only been involved in sin and corruption. The Church calls us to humility when she calls Adam our ancestor. But evolution? Descent from a monkey? No matter how modestly someone may judge himself, still he cannot avoid thinking with some pride. At least I am not a monkey. At least some progress has been realized in me. This is how evolution, by calling a monkey our ancestor, feeds our pride. If a monkey is our benchmark, then one can pride oneself in progress. But if we compare ourselves to the sinless Adam, this external progress will lose its value. The external progress is at the same time a refinement of sin. If humanity is moving forward in its development, then we can rely on ourselves. We can create ourselves. But the Church says the opposite. We could not become incorrupt and immortal if the incorruptible and immortal one had not first become what we are now. To believe in the Incarnation means to confess that without God, all of mankind is nothing. The Church through the ages carries the ideal of deification. This is a very high ideal, and it demands much from man. It is unthinkable without the Incarnation. It forces man to first of all be humbled. Humanity rejects this high ideal, and it no longer needs the incarnation of the Son of God. An infinitely lowered ideal of life allows mankind to speak about progress. It gives it the opportunity to feel proud about its achievements. Precisely these two thought patterns comprise the two worldviews, the ecclesiastical and the secular. The ecclesiastical, the descent of perfect Adam, the fall, the need for the incarnation, humility. The secular, the ascent from the monkey, progress, the needlessness and denial of the incarnation, pride. St. Nikolai Velimirovich of Zicha, who labored in the first half of the 20th century in Serbia, in a work called Death is Unnatural, writes the following. Death is not natural, rather it is unnatural. And death is not from nature, rather it is against nature. All of nature in horror cries out, I do not know death, I do not wish death, I am afraid of death, I strive against death. Death is an uninvited stranger in nature. All of nature bristles at this uninvited stranger and is afraid of it. For it is like a thief in somebody else's garden, who does not just steal and eat the fruit, but who also tramples, spoils, breaks and uproots what was planted. And the more it ravages, the more it becomes satisfied. Even when one hundred philosophies declare that death is natural, all of nature trembles in in death is natural. All of nature trembles in indignation and shouts, No! I have no use for death. It is an uninvited stranger. And the voice of nature is not sophistry. 
The protest of nature against death outweighs all excuses thought up to justify death. And if there is something that nature struggles to express in its untouched harmony, doing so without exception in a unison of voices, then it is a protest against death. It is its unanimous, frantic, and heaven-shaking elegy to death. If, in fact, death is unnatural, if it is not natural and is against nature, then a question arises. Why is it so, and whence does death enter nature? Not a single kingdom of light and life accepts death as its native. It must have sneaked into the worlds of life secretly, crawling on its belly and staying out of sight so that it would not be spotted and exposed. From some bottomless abyss, where even it was too cold and lonely. When death was behind the fangs of a snake, it was dead unto itself. And no one in the world then knew about good and evil. Only bliss existed, and nobody heard of knowledge and ignorance. There was only wisdom, and nobody knew of life and death. There was only the state of blissfully wise existence. But because of an occasion, which is more dreadful than the most horrible nightmare, the mouth of the snake opened, and the fangs full of venom appeared out of it, and death entered first created nature. St. Eustine Popovich of Cilej, Serbia, lived from 1894 to 1979, was a beloved spiritual father, fiery preacher, and prolific author. Spiritual son of St. Nikolai of Zicha, he noted that all of creation fell into corruption along with man, not simply because the destiny of all creatures is linked to man's, but because their destiny is dependent on man's. He says, The fate of visible nature has, from the beginning of its existence, been under the power of the influence of man, organically and mystically connected with man as with a godlike creature of God. Nature in the essence of its life depends upon man and always moves strictly commensurately with man. When man chose the path of sin and death as his path through history, all of nature, as the result of its irresistible inner dependency on man, followed after him. See Romans 8, 19-23. The fall of man was at the same time the fall of nature, and the curse of man became the curse of nature, Genesis 3.17-18. And from that time man and nature, like two inseparable twins, blinded by one and the same darkness, deadened by one and the same death, burdened by one and the same curse, go hand in hand through history, through the abysmal wilderness of sin and evil. Together they stumble, together they fall, and together they arise ceaselessly striving toward the distant conclusion of their sorrowful history. St. Ambrose of Optina, who lived during the time when Darwinian ideas were first making themselves known in Russia, says the following, Don't believe at face value all kinds of nonsense without investigation, that something can come into being of itself from dust, and that people used to be apes. St. John of Kronstadt, who witnessed the theory of evolution begin to spread throughout Western Europe and into Russia, has the following to say. 
Half-educated people and over-educated people do not believe in a personal, righteous, omnipotent, and unoriginate God, but believe in an impersonal origin and in some kind of evolution of the world and all beings. And therefore they live and act as though they will not have to give an answer to anyone for their words and deeds, making gods of themselves, their reason, and their passions. In their blindness they reach the point of insanity, deny the very existence of God, and maintain that everything stems from blind evolution, the teaching that everything comes into being of itself without the participation of a creative power. But he who has an intellect does not believe in such insane ravings. Holy Hieromartyr Vladimir, Metropolitan of Kiev and Galich, the first bishop to be martyred under the communist yoke in Russia, has the following to say about evolutionism. Only at the present time, he wrote, has such an audacious philosophy found a place for itself, which overthrows human worth and tries to give its false teaching a wide dissemination. Man did not originate from God's hands, it says, in an endless and gradual transition from imperfection to perfection, he developed from the animal kingdom, and as little a soul as animals have, so little does man have. How immeasurably deeply does this all degrade and insult man? From the highest step in the progression of creation, he is reduced to the same level as the animals. There is no need to refute such a teaching on a scientific basis, although it would be not difficult to do this since unbelief has far from proved its position. But if such a teaching finds more and more followers at the present time, this is not because the teaching of unbelief has supposedly become inarguably true, but because it does not hinder a corrupt heart that is inclined to sin from giving itself over to its passions. For if man is not immortal, if he is nothing more than the attainment of the highest development of animals, then he has no business with God. Brethren, do not listen to the pernicious, poison-bearing teaching of unbelief, which lowers you to the level of animals and, depriving you of human worth, promises you nothing but despair and an inconsolable life. St. Theophon the Recluse, writer of many spiritual works in 19th century Russia, has this to say on the naturalistic theories of origins that had made their appearance in his time. The truth of God is simple. Can a proud mind study it? Such a mind would rather think up its own things, sensational things, although empty and as weak as a spider's web. To see that this is so, look at the current theories of the creation of the world. They are like a somnambulistic or drunken delirium. And yet how good they seem to those who invented them, how much energy and time are wasted on this, and all in vain. The deed was accomplished simply. He spake, and they came to be. He commanded, and they were created. Psalm 148, verse 5. No one can think up anything better than this solution. In another place, St. Theophon continues the same theme. What ought we to preach? the saint asked. We should cry to all, sons of the kingdom of heaven, 
don't run from the kingdom into bondage and slavery, for they are in fact running. Some are captivated by freedom of mind. They say, we don't want the bonds of faith and the oppression of authority, even divine authority. We'll figure things out and make up our minds for ourselves. So they have made up their minds. They have built fables in which there is more childishness than in the mythology of the Greeks, and they magnify themselves. Others are enticed by the broad path of the passions. They say, We don't want to know positive commandments or the demands of conscience. This is all abstract. We need tangible naturalness. And they have gone after it. What has come of it? They have bowed down before dumb beasts. Has not the theory that man originated from animals arisen from this moral fall? This is where they have gone. And everyone runs from the Lord. Everyone runs. Elsewhere, St. Theophon wrote that Darwinism, together with other godless philosophies from the West, is deserving of formal condemnation by the Orthodox Church. These days, many nihilists of both sexes, naturalists, Darwinists, spiritists, and westernizers in general have multiplied among us. All right, you're thinking, would the Church have been silent? Would it not have proffered its voice? Would it not have condemned or anathematized them if there had been something new in their teaching? To be sure, a council would have done so without doubt, and all of them, with their teachings, would have been given over to anathema. To the current rite of orthodoxy, only the following item would have to be added. To Buchner, Feuerbach, Darwin, Renan, Kardec, and their followers, anathema, but there is no need, either for a special council or for any kind of addition. All of their false teachings were anathematized long ago. At the present time, not only in principal cities, but in all places and churches, the rite of orthodoxy ought to be brought in and celebrated, so that all the teachings contrary to the word of God might be collected and that it might be proclaimed to everyone what they must fear and from what teachings they must flee, and all might know. Many are seduced intellectually only through ignorance, and therefore a public condemnation of pernicious teachings would save them from destruction. If the action of an anathema is terrible to some, then let him avoid the teachings that lead to it. Let him who is afraid of it, for the sake of others, bring them back to a healthy teaching. If you who are not favorably disposed to this action are orthodox, then you are going against yourself. And if you have already lost sound teaching, then what business do you have concerning what is done in the church that supports it? After all, you've already separated yourself from the church and have your own convictions, your own way of looking at things. Well, live with them then. It's all the same whether or not your name and your teaching are uttered under the anathema. You are already under anathema if you philosophize against the church and persist in this philosophizing. St. Theophon predicted that, if naturalistic evolutionary notions of the world's origin continued to be propagated, 
the resulting loss of faith among the Russian people would help pave the way for the overthrow of the Orthodox Christian government of Russia. Less than three decades later, his prediction would be fulfilled. As he observed, People have suddenly had a thought and have started to write about preserving faith, but they don't want to block the source of unbelief. This source is the spread of the teaching that the world formed by itself, according to which there is no need for God and the soul does not exist. It's all atoms and chemistry, nothing more. This is being preached at university rostrums and in literature. He who breathes these fumes is inescapably stupefied and loses his sense and faith. Until these books are destroyed, until professors and literary men are forced not only not to hold to this theory, but even to demolish it, until then, faithlessness will grow and grow, and with it, self-will and the destruction of the present government. That's the way the French Revolution went. Already in his time, St. Theophon saw that science was increasingly becoming a godless enterprise, which worked from the assumption that nature is all there is, and that therefore materialistic explanations can account for everything that exists. At the same time, he saw that the natural sciences were being falsely held up as the most reliable and authoritative source of knowledge. In various places, he spoke of this increasingly pervasive problem. There is not a single science which could be established solidly on its own principles. Something can be obtained from all the sciences, but this is not something that gives one the right to cite science as a decisive authority. It is not science itself that is the problem, but scientists who twist science however they want. Consequently, there are only the conjectures and inferences of scientists. In vain do people think highly about the world and its laws, about nature and its forces, as if there were something untouchable, indisputable, and inviolable in them. Under the appearance of science, they are devising for themselves an idol worship that is more destructive than the mythological idol worship of the ancient Greeks. No, brethren, it is not by the laws and forces of nature that the life of each one of us is upheld, but by the power of God acting within us. The Lord, upholding all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, bears each one of us by the same word of his power. Let us maintain this thought in our mind and imprint it in our heart. The all-active power of God bears us over the abyss of nothingness, and we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28 If He takes away His Spirit, if He removes His hand, we will disappear and will no longer be remembered among the living. But if the Lord holds us, then He touches us, he does not merely see us mentally. No, he touches us, as one hand touches another or as the air touches one's body. How consoling and awesome! Elsewhere, St. Theophon reflected on what can happen to a person's outlook when he does not keep scientific knowledge in a position subordinate to his Christian faith. A pure spirit, noose contemplates God and receives from Him knowledge of mysteries. 
But even the spirit, combined with the body, after the diversity of the creations of the visible world has been revealed to it through the senses, having been enlightened by the same inward illumination from above, must contemplate in these creations all the mysteries of the knowledge of God and the mysteries of God's making and governing of the world, so that even when faced with this great amount of knowledge, it can remain unperturbed in the same single divine contemplation. But, having fallen, a person is captivated by the diversity of created things and even overwhelmed by impressions from them, which supplant within him the very thought of God. Studying created things, he goes no further than what he sees in them, their composition and interrelations, and, not receiving illumination from above, does not see in them the clear reflection of God and the divine mysteries. The world has become for him a tarnished mirror, in which nothing can be seen but the mirror itself. Hence, a great amount of knowledge suppresses within him the knowledge of the one thing. It turns him away from it, makes him cold toward it. Such is the price, and such is the fruit of science in a fallen state. St. Barsanufius of Optina noting the moral ramifications of the acceptance of evolutionist philosophy, says, The English philosopher Darwin created an entire system according to which life is a struggle for existence, a struggle of the strong against the weak, where those who are conquered are doomed to destruction and the conquerors are triumphant. This is already the beginning of a bestial philosophy, and those who come to believe in it wouldn't think twice about killing a man, assaulting a woman, or robbing their closest friend. And they would do all this calmly, with a full recognition of their right to commit these crimes. St. Nectarios, Metropolitan of Pentapolis and Wonderworker of Aegina, who lived from 1846 to 1920, read Darwin's The Descent of Man, among other works of evolutionary philosophy. On Darwin's Descent of Man, he had the following to say, The Darwinian theories imagined that they arrived at the solution of the anthropological question by accepting the mode of evolution. These theories, not being based on sound foundations, instead of solving the problem, rendered it more enigmatic because they denied the validity of revealed truth, viewed man as belonging to the same order as the irrational animals, denied his spiritual origin, and attributed to him a very lowly origin. Their failure had as its chief reason the negation of his lofty origin and his spiritual nature, which is altogether alien to matter and to the physical world. In general, Without the acceptance of revealed truth, man will remain an insoluble problem. The acceptance of it is the firm and safe foundation upon which every inquirer about man must base himself. It is from this that he must begin in order to rightly solve the various parts of the question and learn the truth by means of true science. Father Seraphim Rose writes about the divine vision obtained by the Holy Fathers. 
What is the source of our true knowledge of the first created world, and how is it different from science? How can St. Gregory the Sinite know what happens to the ripe fruits of paradise, and why can natural science not discover such a thing? Since you are a lover of the Holy Fathers, I believe you already know the answer to this question. Still, I will set forth the answer based not on my own reasoning, but on the authority of a Holy Father of the highest spiritual life, St. Isaac the Syrian, who spoke of the soul's ascent to God based on his own experience of it. In describing how the soul is enraptured at the thought of the future age of incorruption, St. Isaac writes, And from this one is already exalted in mind to that which preceded the composition of the world, when there was no creature, nor heaven, nor earth, nor angels, nothing of that which was brought into being, and to how God, solely by his good will, suddenly brought everything from non-being into being, and everything stood before him in perfection. Do you see that St. Gregory the Sinite and other holy fathers of the highest spiritual life beheld the first created world in the state of divine vision, which is beyond all natural knowledge? St. Gregory the Sinite himself states that the eight primary visions of the state of perfect prayer are 1. God, 2. The angelic powers, 3. The composition of visible things, 4. The condescension of the Word, the Incarnation, 5. The universal resurrection, 6. The second coming of Christ, 7. Eternal torments, and 8. The eternal kingdom of heaven. Why should the composition of visible things be included together with the other objects of divine vision, which are all within the sphere of theological knowledge alone, and not scientific knowledge? Is it not because there is an aspect and state of creatures beyond the sphere of scientific knowledge, which can only be seen, as St. Isaac himself saw God's creation, in vision by God's grace? The objects of these visions, St. Gregory teaches, are clearly beheld and known by those who have attained by grace complete purity of mind. St. Luke Archbishop of Simferopol in Crimea, also known as St. Luke the Surgeon, was a doctor of medicine, university professor, and world-famous pioneering surgeon who lived from 1877 to 1961. He served the church as archbishop while conducting his surgical practice and writing books and articles on regional anesthesia and surgery. An outspoken confessor of the faith, he was exiled and tortured numerous times and has become widely known as a miracle worker. In an article entitled Science and Religion, he had the following critique. Darwinism, which declares that man, by means of evolution, has developed from the lower species of animals and is not a product of the creative act of the Godhead, has turned out to be merely a supposition, a hypothesis, which has become obsolete even for science. This hypothesis has been acknowledged as contradictory not only to the Bible, but to nature itself, which jealously strives to preserve the purity of each species, and knows of no transition even from a sparrow to a swallow. 
There are no known facts of a transition of an ape into a man. Saint Sophroni the Athenite, spiritual son of Saint Silouan the Athenite, lived from 1896 to 1993, lived as a hermit on Mount Athos before later founding the monastery of Saint John the Baptist in Essex, England. In his spiritual autobiography, written toward the end of his life, Elder Sophroni had the following to say about the modern evolutionary theory of origins. For many of the representatives of modern science, in the beginning was a hydrogen atom, and from it, by the path of evolution, over the course of an unspecified number of billions of years, arose everything that now exists. The idea is absurd to us, that from accidental combinations, unexpected by the first atom itself, could arise human thought, with its quests for the origin. Elder Paisios of Mount Athos lived from 1924 to 1994, and is one of the most beloved elders of our times. Living as a monk on Mount Athos, he received many heavenly visitations and was granted the divine gift of seeing into human hearts. He spent his nights in prayer and his entire days guiding, consoling, and healing the countless people who came to him. In the following conversation, Elder Paisios, with his Christian conscience made sensitive through prayerful cooperation with God's grace, saw the idea that the God-man Christ descended from a monkey as nothing less than a blasphemy. The nonsense we hear in school these days about Darwin's theory and the rest, even the teachers themselves do not believe what they are teaching, but they go ahead because they want to pollute the minds of our youth and take them away from the church. This is what someone told me. Let's say that the soil contained various substances and microorganisms, and God took these and created man. You mean, I replied, that if those elements did not exist in the soil, God would not have been able to create man? It would have been really difficult for him? Well, let's say, he continued, that he took some things from the monkey and perfected them. Couldn't that be how it happened? Are you trying to say, I answered, that God cannot create a perfect creature, that he cannot create a human being, even after dedicating a whole day to that? What should he have done? Go get spare parts? Why don't you read the prophecy of Job from the scripture readings of Holy Thursday? Now, scientists do not accept all of their own claims about our kinship with monkeys. How long has it been since man went to the moon? In all these years, have monkeys evolved enough to build a bicycle, or at least a skateboard? Have you ever seen a monkey on a skateboard? Of course, you can teach him to do that, but that's not the same thing. But the man would not give up. He insisted, let's assume this, or let's say that, well, let's just say that you will not say a thing, I finally told him. That way you'll find the certainty you want. The theory of evolution was being taught by a professor I knew at the university. Once, I said to him, in time and with proper care, a green bean plant will become a better green bean plant, the eggplant a better eggplant. If you feed and take care of a monkey, he will become a better monkey. 
but he will not turn into a human being. And then, there's this to think about. Christ was born of a human being, the Panagia. Are we supposed to believe that his ancestors were monkeys? What blasphemy! And those who support this theory don't realize that they are blaspheming. They throw a stone and do not check to see how many heads they have cracked. All you will hear from them is, Mine went further than the other fellows. That's what they are all about these days. They marvel at who will throw a stone the furthest. But they care nothing about those who are passing by and the many heads their stones will crack. One day, the elder taught a man about the supernatural knowledge that the prophets and the Holy Fathers obtained through the Holy Spirit. While conversing with a monk who referred to the psalm, I went down into the depths of the waters, Psalm 68, 2, and he said to him, The prophet David, our saints, Basil the Great, who wrote about creation, all of them, with the grace of God, knew everything about the creation by God. The Holy Spirit took them to the depths of the waters. He showed them, and they saw the earth revolving around the sun, and many other things. The saints, however, spoke to people according to the knowledge of their age. This is so that they wouldn't look like fools by revealing everything to their age that they saw by the grace of God. Since simple people were not able to see all those things and understand them, they would not have believed them. St. Eustine Popovich of Chilej, Serbia, spiritual son of St. Nikolai of Zicha, focused his attention in all of his writings on the central fact of human and cosmic existence, that God became man so that man might become God. In a letter to an Orthodox student of theology, St. Eustine presented his response to the theory of evolution. This is the letter in full. My dearest child in God, you would like me to answer the question posed by the theological section. Can the scientific understanding of the evolution of the world and man ever be reconciled with traditional Orthodox perception and knowledge? What is the judgment of the Holy Fathers in this regard? Is there a need at all for reconciliation? In short, the New Testament anthropology stands and falls with the Old Testament anthropology. The entire gospel of the Old Testament, man, the icon of God. The entire gospel of the New Testament, the God-man, the icon of man. Heavenly, divine, immortal, everlasting, and unchangeably human is the icon of God in man, God-likeness. This God-likeness of the human being has been scarred by man's voluntary sin, his pact with the devil through sin, and death as the consequence of sin. For this reason, God became man to renew his image which had been corrupted through sin. God became man and remained in the human world as God-man, as the church, in order to give man, the image of God, all the necessary means, the holy mysteries and holy virtues in the divine human body of the church, by which God-like man would be elevated. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. This is the divine human evolution of man, 
This is the divine human anthropology, the aim of man's godlike being, to gradually become perfect like God the Father, to become God by grace, God-man by grace, to become divine, to become divine human, to become Christ-like, to become triune. According to the Holy Fathers, God became man so that man might become God. On the other hand, the so-called scientific anthropologies do not recognize at all the godlikeness of the human being. Hence, they deny a priori, the divine human evolution of man's being. If man is not the icon of God, then the God-man and his gospel are unnatural for such a man, and also mechanical and unachievable. The God-man Christ is a robot and creates robots. The God-man is an oppressor, because he forcibly wants to transform man into a being perfect like God. Actually, this is an unviable utopia, an illusion, and an unreachable ideal. In the final instance, it is a fairy tale and a fable. Furthermore, if man is not a godlike being, then the god-man is superfluous. For scientific theories of evolution acknowledge neither sin nor the Savior from sin. In this earthly world of evolution, everything is natural. There is no place for sin. That is why it is ridiculous to speak of the Savior and of salvation from sin. In the final analysis, everything is natural, sin, evil, and death. For if everything comes and is given to man through evolution— then what is it that has to be saved in man, inasmuch as there is nothing immortal and intransitory in him, but all is from the earth, earthly, earthen, and as such is transitory, corruptible, and mortal? In such a world of evolution there is no place for the church, which is the body of the God-man Christ. That theology which bases its anthropology on the theory of scientific evolution is nothing but a contradiction in terms. In reality, it is a theology without God and an anthropology without man. If man is not immortal, everlasting, and a divine human icon of God, then all theologies and all anthropologies are senseless farces and tragic comedies. Your Father, Eustine. In this text, Father Seraphim Rose summarizes many principles and concepts crucial for our understanding of Genesis. He writes, Vain are they who say that the Holy Fathers were naive in science and simply didn't know about evolution, as if the Holy Spirit withheld this information from the divinely inspired Fathers and Scriptures, and revealed it only to 18th century Enlightenment man and his later descendants. On the contrary, they knew quite well what was being said in Genesis. We know, therefore, that before the fall of man some 7,500 years ago, no creature experienced corruption, but the whole evidence for evolution lies precisely in the evidence of corruption which, supposedly, occurred before the evolution of man. Need we hesitate to know where the truth lies? If science finds that the virgin birth of Christ is outside the laws of nature as it knows them, we Orthodox Christians nonetheless believe it absolutely. 
In the same way, even if science finds the incorrupt creatures of the first period of the world's existence impossible by the laws of nature it knows, we still believe as the Church and the Holy Fathers do. And there is a specific reason why science cannot understand this mystery, which is set forth by the great father, St. Simeon the New Theologian, in his 38th homily. The words and decrees of God become the law of nature. Therefore also the decree of God, uttered by him as a result of the disobedience of the first Adam, that is, the decree to him of death and corruption, became the law of nature eternal, and unalterable. Therefore, in order to abrogate this decree, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified and died, offering himself as a sacrifice for the redemption of man from death. That is to say, the law of nature before Adam's disobedience is different from the law of nature now in force, and it is therefore totally unknowable by science. Certain it is that science cannot, on the basis of observing a creation which is everywhere corruptible and moral, make even the slightest inference about a creation not subject to these laws. What was before the disobedience of Adam, and what is beyond the end of this corruptible world, when the creation will not be destroyed but totally transformed, are totally outside the sphere of science, and may be known only through orthodox theology in accordance with God's revelation to mankind. At this point, the sincere orthodox believer who is confused because he has been taught evolution from his childhood and cannot force himself to disbelieve in it all at once, will ask, Is it not still possible somehow to reinterpret the incorruptibility of Adam and the first creation so as not to be too much outside the fashions of contemporary ideas? To which the answer is, If you wish to reinterpret the state before the corruptible, fallen world we know, then you must likewise reinterpret the state after this fallen world, the future bliss of heaven, for the two correspond and only differ, as St. Simeon has pointed out in the long passage quoted above, in that the future state of the world will be fully spiritual, corresponding to the spiritual body of the men who will dwell in it, and no longer will it be possible for its incorruptibility to be lost. Do we Orthodox Christians believe that we will actually be immortal and incorruptible in that next life, if God will only number us among the saved, or only metaphorically and allegorically so? If we believe and think as the Holy Fathers do, then our future incorruptibility will be real, as was that of the creation and of Adam before his disobedience. It is vain for us to imagine that we are more sophisticated than the Holy Fathers, being so wise by modern enlightenment and science that we know better than they how to read and interpret the divinely inspired scriptures. As St. Basil says, considering ourselves wiser than the revelations of the Spirit. The superiority of modern knowledge over that of the Holy Fathers lies solely in one respect, which lies at the very bottom of the hierarchy of knowledge, in the quantity of scientific facts now available to us, but not everything that calls itself scientific fact is such. 
In every other respect, our knowledge is inferior to theirs. They knew far better than today's scientists and philosophers the place of scientific knowledge in the whole hierarchy of knowledge. And they saw clearly that the proper interpretation of Genesis is the task of theology, not science, and it is facilitated not at all by a knowledge of present-day scientific facts, but rather by advancement in spiritual life and understanding. That, indeed, is why the whole doctrine of creation is presented most clearly, precisely in the writings of a father like St. Simeon the New Theologian, who attained the heights of spiritual life. The notion that we now, enlightened by science, can understand Genesis better than the Holy Fathers, is itself a result of that evolutionary philosophy which virtually everyone now holds quite unconsciously. To conclude this collection of teachings, we will chant just a few hymns from the divine services of the Orthodox Church to capture the beauty and essence of this theology. From the Vespers of the Sunday of Forgiveness, the casting out of Adam from paradise. The Lord my Creator took me as dust from the earth and formed me as a living creature, breathing into me the breath of life and giving me a soul. He honored me, setting me as ruler upon earth over all things visible and making me companion of the angels. But Satan the deceiver, using the serpent as his instrument, enticed me by food. He parted me from the glory of God and gave me over to the earth and to the lowest depths of death. But Master, in compassion, call me back again. O precious paradise, unsurpassed in beauty, tabernacle built by God, unending gladness and delight, glory of the righteous, joy of the prophets and dwelling of the saints, with the sound of thy leaves pray to the Maker of all. May he open unto me the gates which I close by my transgression, and may he count me worthy to partake of the tree of life and of the joy which was mine when I dwelt in thee before. From Matins of the Sunday of Forgiveness Adam was driven out of paradise because in disobedience he had eaten food, but Moses was granted the vision of God because he had cleansed the eyes of his soul by fasting. If then we long to dwell in paradise, let us abstain from all needless food, and if we desire to see God, let us, like Moses, fast for forty days. Lastly, a hymn from Great Vespers of the Feast of the Elevation of the Holy Cross. Come, O ye peoples, let us venerate the blessed wood through which the eternal justice has been brought to pass. For he who by a tree deceived our forefather Adam is by the cross himself deceived and he who by tyranny gained possession of the creature endowed by God with royal dignity is overthrown in headlong fall. By the blood of God the poison of the serpent is washed away, and the curse of a just condemnation is loosed by the unjust punishment inflicted on the just. For it was fitting that wood should be healed by wood, and that through the passion of one who knew not passion should be remitted all the sufferings of him who was condemned because of wood. Through the prayers of our holy fathers, of our God-inspired fathers of these latter times, O Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us. Amen.